God, we come before you today acknowledging that you are the king of the world, the creator of all the worlds, the master of the universe. And we ask that you would grant us grace as we hear your word preached. Give us ears to hear, because it's hard to believe and a will to put these things into action. We ask this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. It's funny what the mention of a certain name can do to you. Names, names, names. Some people like dropping names. If I were to mention the name Teddy Roosevelt to you, I think that if you know who he is, certain images would come to your mind. Maybe you'd see Mount Rushmore. You'd see his perfectly coiffed mustache. Maybe you'd hear his voice as you imagined it. But what if I were to tell you the name Franklin Pierce? What would that do for you? Do you even know what he looked like? Now, they're both former presidents of the United States, but... One name is much better known than the other name. And even Franklin Pierce, I could give you a couple that are more obscure than and he. Andrew Johnson, what did he look like? You know anything about Chester A. Arthur? Maybe, maybe not. When we hear names, they conjure up in us certain reactions. And in Boston of all cities, the name Adams has a distinct ring in the ear of the natives there. It's been said, I've been told, that when one is introduced in Boston as an Adams, that the whispers begin to start about the name. Is he or she a real Adams? Are they from that Adams family? No pun intended. Are they from the line of John? Abigail and John Quincy and Henry and Brooks and all of the other members that, of that illustrious New England family that bear that great and distinguished name. And I think that many of us, certainly I did when I was a boy, maybe have daydreamed at one time or another of coming from a famous family that had untold riches and a, a powerful name and we wonder what doors might be open to me if I possessed so powerful a last name what if my last name was Trump or something like Kennedy what, what opportunities would I have that I don't have with my ordinary non-famous name we don't really know to the best of my knowledge, nobody here springs from royal lineage. A little bit later, we'll get back to the Adams family of Boston. But let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, and as we spoke last week, we discussed the preface of the Lord's Prayer. If God is your heavenly father, then whose family are you in? You're in God's family. And if you're in God's family, whose name do you bear? His name. Isn't that enough for you? Isn't that enough for me? 
to be called a child of the living God. As we sang in that opening hymn, Children of the Heavenly Father. What good would it do if we did possess a famous name here on earth and weren't counted in the family of God? What good would it do? Maybe it would help us for 50, 60, 70, or 80 years, but at the end of the day, on Judgment Day, God's not going to ask, hey, what's your last name? If you're a Christian, you belong to God's family. He's your father. And what the first petition, hallowed be thy name, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, what this really teaches us is that we need to ask God to glorify his name in us. We need to ask God to glorify his name in the world. We need to ask God to glorify his name in everything we say, do, or think, and every emotion we feel. His glory has got to be the, uh, at the uttermost of our desires. And you would think that having a name like Christian would satisfy us. And we would also think that we would want to see God's name hallowed in our lives. That we would want to see God's name hallowed in the world, that we would want to see God publicize and spread his name and emblazon it like a, a day-glow billboard all over the earth. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But even if we do, we run into a very big problem at this juncture. Your Heavenly Father's good name his holy name, is blasphemed and dishonored and unhallowed in ways that none of us can ever imagine, even in our own lives, even in his own church. Because you see, we have a very small understanding of what it means to hallow God's name. And if we begin to realize what that really means in this prayer, then we'll realize that his name isn't hallowed in all of the earth. How does the chorus go? Let thy glory... I'm not going to sing it for you because I forgot the words and I can't sing. What Jesus is doing in this Lord's Prayer, please remember, is he's counteracting the Pharisees' attitude of glorying themselves. Remember, they made these long, showy, ostentatious public prayers to do what? To make a name for themselves. That other people would say, well, look at them. Look at him. Isn't he so holy and so pious? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were not concerned about God's name. And what Jesus is telling us is that our desire should be that God's name be hallowed, irrespective of our reputation. Too many of us are far, far too more worried about our own reputation than the reputation of our Heavenly Father. We're worried more about our name than our Heavenly Father's name. How can I prove that? Well, just review your life and ask yourself, was there a time ever in your life when you had a chance to speak up on behalf of God and you didn't because you thought that you might be embarrassed in front of the crowd? 
that you might be ostracized by one person or another. That your name would be dismerged if you spoke up for his good name. I think all of us would say, yes, at one time or another, I've done that. If we were really honest, we'd say that happens more often than we care to admit. And that's the problem. We don't realize that hallowing God's name isn't just about saying his name in a prayer. Hallowing God's name isn't merely not using his name as a cuss word. Hallowing God's name is living a holy life. Even the life that no one can see, our thoughts and our feelings have to be sanctified by the grace of God. That's what it means to hallow God's name. And the word hallow isn't a word that we generally use, is it? When was the last time you actually used that word outside of this prayer? Maybe towards the end of October? Some of us celebrate All Hallows Eve, Halloween. Certainly not even in the class of this prayer. What does it mean to hallow? What does the word itself mean? It's not very complicated. It means to sanctify. Well, that's a big word too. It means to consecrate something. That's a big word too. It means to set apart something as holy. To hallow God's name means to separate it from all other names. Oh, here's another chorus that's running through my mind now. Jesus' name above all names. Don't worry, I will not sing it for you. Jesus' name above all names. When we hallow God's name, we place his name and his reputation at the forefront, over and above everything. And we have to remember also that the idea of a name is different in the ancient world than it is today. We don't make that big of a deal about our names unless, unless we're a boy and our father and our mother's name does Sue, like the old Johnny Cash song. We don't really think about it too much. You might not even know what your name actually means. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But in the ancient world, a name was extremely important. A name was extremely important. You remember when Moses was called by God to go back into Egypt. What was his basic question? What's your name? When I go there, who do I say sent me? And the implication of that was he was trying to remind God, don't you realize there's a trillion gods back there? I have to have a name. And so, his name is Yahweh. That's a difficult word. It simply means to be, or I am, or I exist. I will be what I am. I will be what I is. God is pure holiness and pure existence. And that's the first thing we have to nail down, is that God is pure existence. There's nothing before him. Everything is after him. Everything is about him. If we could really grab a hold of that, if we could grab a hold of who he really is, imagine him. He's never not existed. He always has been. And he has called you by his grace and placed your name, he's given you his name rather, and changed you. Isn't that a cause for great celebration? 
to realize that the eternal God loves you so much that he calls you son or daughter. That he loves you so much that he willingly adopts you into his family. And that he lets you stay in his family even when you run screaming and kicking towards the door like we do every time we sin. We're all prodigal sons and daughters. We all want to run away to a far off country because we think the grass is greener on the other side. We all want to run away and join another family, at least for a time, because we think that name will be more glorious than just plain old God. And when we really think of it that way, we really realize that spiritually we're like infants in a sandbox. We really don't even have the foggiest grasp of the most elementary issues sometimes. Sticking to the fundamentals and remembering who God is is the first key to progressing in holiness. And progressing in holiness is the only way that you can actually hallow God's name. Believe it or not, you are supposed to grow as a Christian. You are supposed to grow in your practical application of the things of the gospel. And a lot of Christians don't do that. We have stunted growth. And we don't grow in our knowledge of God. We don't grow in our experience of God. And we certainly don't grow in our representation of God in the public square. And frankly, that's a cause of great, great shame. Or it should be at least. And shame is a bit of an underrated emotion our day. Now this idea of hallowing God's name isn't something new. When, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and he told the people, his disciples, to hallow God's name, they, they would have remembered their Old Testament theology and history. In the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36, the great passage, Ezekiel was an exilic prophet. That's a fancy way of saying he was a prophet after God had destroyed Judah, after Israel had been torn asunder, and God had enslaved his people to the Babylonians, Ezekiel was there. And God gives Ezekiel a a lot of visions. But in chapter 36, what he's doing is he's promising, through Ezekiel the prophet, that God would restore his people. That the exile would only be 70 years because that's what he promised in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was either before Ezekiel or a contemporary of his. The exile was going to be temporary. They were going to be restored. And then God says this. I'm going to paraphrase it here. You can go home and read Ezekiel 36.23. That he's going to do it because of his great name. He's not going to do it because of them. Because they had profaned his name amongst the Gentiles. They had profaned his name amongst the nations. And God was going to restore Israel for his own reputation's sake. He was going to restore Israel so that all of the nations, including Israel, would hallow his holy name. That was the reason why he did it. And when we say hallowed, we are addressing the Father. Hallowed be thy name. What do we mean when we say that? We're actually asking God to make his name great. 
It's an inscription of praise, certainly. But what we're asking is that God would make his name great wherever any evidence of his existence is found. Now, where can we find evidence that God actually exists? I have a very easy answer for you. Everywhere your eyes look, every sound you hear, everything you experience with your senses, I'm touching this pulpit. It's finely handcrafted, but I believe the Reverend Martin made this before most of us were even born. He didn't make the wood. God made the wood. Man cut it and crafted it, but you can't make wood. Go out and try it someday. You can't make stones. You can make concrete, but you can't make the stones. You can make lemonade, but you cannot make the lemon, the sugar, or the water, or whatever else is in that beautiful concoction. God is the creator of everything. So we see evidence of him everywhere we look. So when we say, how will be thy name? What we're asking God is to make known, to enable us to see that everywhere we look, we see evidence of his hand, of his power, of his existence. And we're asking that he would enable us and incline us to worship him because of who he is. And we're simultaneously asking not only for ourselves, but for all those who do not know him, all those who do not acknowledge him, all those who are ignorant and idolatrous. And yes, even atheists, we want God to make his name known. We want him to publicize his name to make his reputation famous. That is what it means when we pray, hallowed be thy name. Now, the Bible is where we primarily find our source of data for God. Because, you see, the Bible corrects our understanding of nature. Think of it. If we didn't have the Bible, and we didn't have the data that was in the Bible, and all we had was the natural world, we could come to some very reasonable conclusions and they would not be Christian at all. If we didn't have the Bible and we just looked out at nature, we could easily teach our children that there is really one fundamental rule. Do unto others before they do unto you. Because that's what you see in the animal kingdom. If we didn't have the data of the Bible, we could easily conclude that death Disease and destruction are part and parcel of life. But the Bible tells us that no, those things are not original. They are a result of Adam's sin and that they will be corrected at the second coming. When the second Adam returns and restores things to a state beyond what they were in Eden. If we didn't have the Bible, all we'd have is nature. And if you haven't looked around, nature is pretty nasty. Hail comes and destroys crops. Locusts come and destroy crops. Rain doesn't come and crops dry up. Too much rain comes and floods happen. People kill each other for no reason whatsoever. We're part of the natural world as well, don't forget. Hallowed be thy name. And this first petition teaches us a number of things. 
who teaches us that our prayers themselves must begin with praise and adoration. It's a mistake for us to just run in and start asking God for stuff. Because you have to understand that the stuff he gives us, guess what? It's to be used for his glory anyway. If he gives you a new car, if he gives you good health, whatever he gives you, it's to be used for his glory. It's a boasting point. Really, think of yourself as a little kid. And you're in the playground. And you're jockeying for family position in the playground. My daddy does this. My daddy's a lawyer. Your daddy's just a garbage man. Well, kid might say, well, guess what? You know, maybe my dad won't pick up your garbage in the next few weeks. And we'll see whose dad really has the power. But we bra- you brag, don't you? If you have a good dad, and some of us I know haven't had the best of dads, and maybe we didn't want to brag about our dad. But that happens in playgrounds. Children brag, my dad does this, he can do that. And what's the proof? Well, my dad gave me this. Oh, that's what your dad gave you? And, and children are cruel, aren't they? Children are more cruel than adults could ever dream of being. You see, everything that God gives you, you're supposed to use as a boasting point in the playground of life. This is what my Heavenly Father gave me. Everything is to be used for His glory. Why? Because, listen, the universe exists for one purpose and one purpose only. The purpose of the universe is for God's pleasure. He didn't need to create the universe. He had no need, certainly, to create us. He did it for his own reasons, for his own good pleasure, to glorify his own name. It really is just that simple. So I'd like you to think just for a minute of some of the good things God has done for you. And think of a way that you could use it humbly as a boasting point for your father. This is what my daddy did for me this week. This is what my daddy did for me last Christmas. This is what my daddy's going to do for me. He promised me this present. He promised me a mansion in his house. He promised me that he would bring me safely from this life to the next. He promised me that if I believed in his son, that he would save me from my sin. That's what my father promised me. Very simple way of witnessing. Just bragging about what God has done. Have you been able to bear up under an illness? Have you been able to bear up under strain? I know all of us have to a certain extent. Some of us a lot more so than others. Well, that's because of God's grace. He gives us the strength to go through the horrible and hard times. And that's another boasting point for his name. I can't tell you how powerful a testimony it is when a Christian bears up under the bitter strains of life with grace and dignity. Just yesterday, I attended a funeral. 
in Beaver County for one of my colleagues in Ascension Presbytery, Reverend Dale Solly, longtime pastor of New Life uh, Presbyterian Church in Hopewell. Dale's wife died about two and a half years ago. That crushed him. And he started to lose a lot of weight, started to look weak. And almost to a man, all of us in the presbytery just thought he's not sleeping and eating. He misses his wife that much. Well, that was one thing, but little did we know that he had pancreatic cancer. And it got him. He had it about 15 months. And you know, he never once complained. All the testimonies that were given yesterday was that instead of going off into a corner and saying, I'm going to die, he busied himself because he realized, I don't have that much time left. He was just in the hospital two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and he was still hoping to go to General Assembly. He was a moderator of our presbytery, preaching up a storm. Just last week he preached a, a, a message, and now he's gone. A powerful testimony to those outside of the power of God's name. Dale bore God's name with grace and dignity. Now, hopefully none of us will have to go through what he went through, but it's a powerful testimony. This is what it means to hallow God's name. And it might seem obvious that we exist for his glory, but how easy it is for us to forget that and to get caught up in our own lives and to think that we exist for ourselves. Parents, do you realize that your children are a great gift from God? Yes, we do know that even when they misbehave. But we have got to teach them that they exist for God's glory. And if we can pass that on to them, then we will have been successful. If we can pass that simple message on that everything that they are given, including their Christian parents, is a gift from God and is to be used for his glory as a boasting point for his name, we will have been successful in our endeavors as parents. Yes, children, your Christian parents are a big gift from God and you had better appreciate them and brag about them. My Heavenly Father gave me parents who make me learn my lessons. They make me eat my vegetables because they love me. They know what's best for me even if I don't like what I think is best for me. Do you realize what a privilege this is? The Son of God is telling us to ask God to glorify His name everywhere and anywhere. Do you think God needs our help? No, He doesn't. That, that's, the ramifications that are, are, are astonishing. That God gives us the honor of asking Him to do something for Himself. It's like a father asking his son or a mother asking a daughter to help with an easy task that they don't need help with just to get that bond, that parental child bond stronger. Here, help me carry out the garbage, Junior. You don't need help, but it makes the kid feel good. At least when they're younger. 
God is commanding you to ask him to do something that he will say yes to. Do you want to hallow God's name? Do you want to see his name proclaimed everywhere? Do you want to see atheism and ignorance and idolatry torn down? Is that the fundamental mark of your life or is it something else? Most likely you kind of go back and forth because we are recovering idolaters. We have to go to Idolaters Anonymous because we erect idols everywhere. The gifts that God gives us, we turn them into an idol and we think that they exist for themselves. Oh, I love this car. Oh, I love this job. Oh, I love this woman. Oh, I love that man. Oh, I just have to have that. No, you don't need anything but God. I'm getting back to that Adams family. We don't like saying that. There was a man from that famous family of last century, late last century, who went to a minister in Boston to make preparations for his funeral. Now, the man wasn't in ill health, but he, like a good Adams, he wanted to prepare for that inevitable toll of the bell. And the way the pastor speaks about it. He said, after the details were worked out, we began to engage in small talk. And then he points out, as much small talk as an Adams is able to endure. Apparently the family has a reputation for being very, very serious. And he asked him, what's it like to bear that name? What's it like to have the name Adams go before you into every foyer you ever walk into? And the man said, it's a lifetime job. And then the man told the pastor, when I graduated from Harvard, my father took me aside before I went to work the next day. And his father had been undersecretary of something or another to Calvin Coolidge. And he said, my father told me, you've inherited a reputation, a name for truth. God help you if you ever lose it. It's a lifetime job. But you know, as an ordinary, average Christian, you have a far greater honor than that Adams ever did. You bear God's name. And hallowing God's name, sanctifying his name, is a lifetime job. May we pray that God glorifies his name in our lives and everywhere we look because evil is running rampant and only God's name can counteract it. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would hallow your name in our lives and that you would grant us your grace to do everything we can to sanctify your name in everything we do. In your precious and holy name, amen.